I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. We looked at Mary's song of praise last week in the Magnificat. Uh, this week we're looking at Zechariah's prophecy, uh, which has some, some poetic elements, and so we're sort of dubbing it a song as well. I've entitled the, the sermon, Bless, uh, from verse 68, where he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. So, he's blessing God. The sermon title is Bless. Our key words for our worshipers and training are peace, wisdom, and song. The 2019 winter solstice in the Northern Hemisphere will be December 21st at 11.19 p.m. This occurs when the Earth's northern pole has its maximum tilt away from the sun. Though the actual winter solstice occurs uh, only at this precise moment, we, we generally talk about it as like in terms of the whole day. Um, because it's the, it's the day of the year where we have the least amount of sunlight. Winter as a whole tends to have shorter days and longer hours of darkness, but the winter solstice is the day when the sun is at its lowest maximum daily elevation, and so we get the, the longest night of the year. Well, thanks to artificial illumination, uh, winter's lack of sunlight generally doesn't have dramatic effects on us. Studies show, however, that it does still register in our bodies. We need, it turns out, sufficient exposure to sunlight to survive. Who would have thought? Uh, one article that I came across said this to say, it says, for starters, UV rays in sunlight trigger photosynthetic process, trigger a photosynthetic process in the skin that produces vitamin D. This vitamin's active form may help to regulate more than 1,000 genes, which in turn govern most of the body's tissues. Vitamin D is also crucial for bone health and for keeping the immune system going strong. Insufficient amounts of vitamin D can trigger ailments such as rickets, a weakening of the bones that can cause skeletal deformities and dental issues. Vitamin D deficiency can also lead to uh, the cutaneous form of tuberculosis, which causes painful lesions. One recent study even associated the deficiency of the vitamin with an increased risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease in older people. Several deficient patients were more than twice as likely to develop these ailments, the study found. There are uh, indeed other benefits, but... Um, the point is that uh, we need the sun. And so today, we're looking at Zechariah's prayer, or this prophetic song over his son, uh, John, who was born. And in this prayer, this song, we are reminded of the darkness in which the world sat because of sin, and it was the coming of Christ, whom this boy John would be the forerunner, it was the coming of Christ in His coming, that the sun burst forth over the horizon and provided us with the spiritual light that we needed to survive. We are continuing this series of sermons through songs of the Bible so that we can improve upon our understanding of what makes a good song for the people of God. 
We've been in and out of this series this year, and, uh, and we've seen over and over that the songs of the Bible are full to the brim, spilling over even with deep, rich theological truths that speak to every aspect of our lives as God's covenant people. The songs speak of the might, majesty, and wisdom of God. They speak of our sin and misery. They speak of God's determination to do His people good and His insistence on punishing those who continue in rebellion against Him. Last week in Mary's song, we we see that God is fundamentally opposed to the proud, but He stands ready to pour out love and to welcome welcome with grace the humble. And today, in Zechariah's prayer, we're going to see the light of the Gospel after the birth of his son. Zechariah here comes to this song after some doubt and unbelief. He and Elizabeth were quite old, uh, and upon the news of hearing that John would be born, he, he was a bit... Um, he doubted, right? He, didn't, he, he wasn't quite sure that this was possible, and, um, and so after the child is born, he speaks and he prophesies this. He was, he was uh, unable to speak for the duration of the, the pregnancy, but upon the birth, he speaks. And this is what he says, Zechariah, uh, sorry, Luke 1, 67-79. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. As He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now you can divide this uh, prophecy, this prayer, this song up into two basic parts. First, he blesses God for His salvation that He has lavished upon His people. And second, he, he speaks of the role that His own Son will play in redemptive history as the forerunner of Messiah. Uh, we won't consider those two things. It won't be just part one, part two. We're going to look at three main headings, though. Two, two of them will be from the first section of this uh, prayer, and then one will be from the last. So, um, under the first heading, we will consider the promise of salvation and the purpose of salvation. And under heading two, we'll note the, the pronouncement of salvation. So, uh, in verses 67 through 75 we'll see the purpose and promise of salvation. And in 66, 76 through um, 79, we will note the pronouncement. So purpose, promise, pronouncement of salvation. First, the promise of salvation. And we'll, we'll note what he says specifically in verse um, 69, 70. 
Um, He says that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets of old. And notice in 73 that he mentions the oath that he swore to Abraham. What's what's the point of this reference to this promise, this oath? The point is that God can be trusted to do what He says He will do. God promised salvation and He gave salvation. Let's unpack that a bit. Like we saw last week in Mary's prayer, uh, when she mentions Abraham, Zechariah too mentions Abraham. But he also mentions David. We saw last week that God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would indeed fulfill the promise that he had made to Adam and Eve and their children in the Garden of Eden. He would send a Redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. And so in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. The promise continues through his children, Isaac and Jacob. After Jacob, we get a long stretch of time where the people of God end up in Egypt and they've become uh, more than a large family. They are an entire nation. And they pose a threat to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so he enslaves Israel. And now it's been... uh, over 400 years since God promised to Abraham that He would make him a great nation. Now, He has indeed, at this point, made him a nation, but are they, they, are they great? They're, they're slaves in Egypt. It hardly seems like a fulfillment, a final fulfillment of that wonderful promise. Well, as we know, the story isn't over. God raises up Moses and delivers His people from Egyptian bondage and eventually sets a king over them, Saul. Saul... Uh, he doesn't really begin or end very well. From hiding in the luggage rack to blatantly disobeying the commands of God, his reign over Israel is lackluster at best and outright blasphemous at worst. And so God disposes him and raises up David. Now, David, despite some very serious, serious flaws of his own, he turns out to be a very good king. He's said to be a man after God's own heart and essentially becomes the Mendoza line for good kings after him. Every king after David is compared to David. The good ones did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David had done. The bad ones did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow in the steps of David. And yet David's overall righteous reign as king is far from perfect and it becomes evident that he is not the promised Messiah. And even before his moral failures in 2 Samuel 11, we we see that there is is yet another king for whom we must wait. In 2 Samuel 7, God renews His covenant with the people through David. 2 Samuel 7, we read that David wants to build a house, a temple for the Lord. But God tells him that it's not David who would build a house for God, but God would build a house for God. For David, he says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. 
And I will appoint a place for My people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over My people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that He will make you a house. And so God reminds His people in 2 Samuel 7 that He has not forgotten them. And ultimately, it's not He that needs them, but it is they that need Him. He is the one who cares for them. He will provide for them. He will protect them. He will deliver and rescue them from their enemies. And this is what Zechariah glories in in Luke 1. The arrival of this promised salvation. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David. His son has just been born, but he's not thinking of his son here. He's thinking of the child to be born in a few months who would come after his son. He's thinking of the child in the womb of his wife's cousin, Mary. He's thinking of Jesus Christ. God had promised to Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his children. He had promised to Israel, to Moses and Aaron, to Joshua and Caleb. He promised to David and Solomon. He had promised to deliver His people from their bondage to sin, death, and decay. And Zechariah sees that the promise has come to be in his own lifetime. He raises his voice nearly, as we said, for the first time in nine months. And he blesses God who has proven time and again to be faithful. And he mentions in verse 73 an oath. This harkens back to Genesis 15 where God makes an oath to Abraham where He walks down an aisle split with animal carcasses on each side and promises deliverance to Abraham. The point? He's saying that if I don't make good on my promise, may I be cut in half like these animals. He swore an oath by Himself demonstrating how deadly serious He was to fulfill it. God made the promise of salvation. And now, Zechariah tells us, He has delivered the goods. How about it, believer? How does this sit with your soul this morning. God would rather be torn in half than fail to deliver even a single promise He has made to you. And if you know anything about God, it is in fact impossible that He be torn in half. God is God forever, and so His promise to you stands forever. And so that's the promise of salvation. We're still in uh, verses 67 to 75 here, um, but we're going to look at a second thing. We're going to look at the purpose of salvation. And there are two, two things, two purposes that we see here to which I'd like to draw your attention. Uh, check out verse 71. He says, He raised up this horn of salvation that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us. Why? to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His covenant. And then down in 74 and 75, 
The oath made to Abraham this promise of salvation was so that once we were delivered from the hands of our enemies, we might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. So what is the purpose of salvation? According to these verses, it is twofold. One, to demonstrate the mercy and faithfulness of God. Two, that His people, once saved, might serve Him in holiness and righteousness all their days. Think about each one with me for a few minutes. So first, the mercy of God. God saves in order that the promised mercy to our fathers might be demonstrated. He saves in order to remember His holy covenant. God delights in the demonstration of His power, goodness, faithfulness, wisdom, and grace. In fact, we see that this is perhaps you could say the primary purpose of salvation. Why does God mount a rescue mission at all? For His own glory. For the praise of His name. For the display of His mercy and His grace. Mankind had rebelled against Him. We rejected God as God. As our God. We set ourselves up as little kings and queens on the thrones of our hearts and we wanted nothing to do with our Creator God. He would have been perfectly justified in wiping us out. He could have struck Adam and Eve dead on the spot. He could have let Noah and his family drown in the flood. He could have let the Egyptians not only enslave the people of Israel, but obliterate them. The same is true with Assyria and Babylon. They didn't have to take anyone captive. They could have killed every single last one of the Jewish people. Or Haman's plot in the book of Esther could have turned out much differently. And yet, none of these things happened in the way that they could have with the ultimate destruction of the human race. Or the the line of promise. And so why does God spare us so? You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have tried you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake... For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. That's Isaiah 48, 6-11. Why does God not cut us off forever? For the sake of His own praise. For the remembrance of His mercy, His covenant, and His grace. But second, we see another purpose of salvation. Not just for the praise of His name, but God saves us in order that His people may serve Him in holiness all their days. 
God saves His people for praise. He saves His people for service. And notice three aspects of this service in 74 and 75. First, it is a service without fear. Every ruler that they have served up to this point, with almost no exceptions, has been a brutal tyrant. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, to name a few. The Jewish people were currently under the iron rule. At this very time, they were under the iron rule of the Roman Empire with an evil Herod set up as this puppet king over them. Pharaoh beat them. Nebuchadnezzar sought to burn them alive. Darius threw them in the lion's pit. The Romans invented crucifixion. God's people had known fearful service. But God saves them out of the hand of their enemies, not so that they may do nothing and merely leisurely stroll by, but He he saves them that they may serve Him, but they serve Him not out of fear, but out of love. We see second, the service is done in holiness and righteousness. Again, so many of the previous rulers of the Jewish people demanded hard labor, sometimes to do wicked things. But not God. No, God saved His people for holy and righteous service. Their service was to be completely devoted to God. To His will and His way. It was completely good and completely right. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And so too, for His people... Our service to Him is that of light and not that of darkness. Well, third, the service is to be done forever. Admittedly, thinking about eternity is a daunting task. I have had many occasions, personally, where the thought of eternity, even eternity in heaven, with Christ, with His people, with you, terrified me. The thought that I'd be conscious in a million years from now is very intense. The thought that we will be conscious in a billion years, a trillion years, whatever comes after a trillion, never, ever, ever will it end. Never will you cease to exist. Every one of us in this room is going to exist for eternity in heaven or in hell. The thought of eternity in hell, obviously, is far worse and provides no relief to this tension of eternity. So there must be something about heaven that I don't understand if it's fearful at all to me. If I experience a mild panic attack at the thought of living forever. And I think it's this. I think it is very difficult, if not impossible, for us to truly imagine a world without sin. I don't want to live in this sin-stained world forever. I don't want to continue giving half-hearted returns of love to my King forever. It would be unbearable to live unto eternity in this broken shell with my weak, 
stained, imperfect affections. But that brings up the beauty of this promise. God saves us not so that we might serve Him half-heartedly and imperfectly for all of our days. He saves us for perfect, fearless, holy, righteous service forever. Believer, there is a day coming when you will never sin again. Ever. There is a day coming when you will never have a cross thought. You will never speak a sinful word. There is a day coming when you will never fail your high King again. Let us wait with eager expectation for that day and strive with all our might to live faithful lives pleasing in the sight of God until then. And we should note, while I think this verse speaks of great hope of an eschatological sense, an eternal service to God, we are called here and now to serve God in holiness and righteousness. If we aren't interested in serving God now, we shouldn't think that we will be interested in serving Him then. But that is this purpose of salvation. That God might be glorified and that we might be freed from the shackles of our sin to serve Him perfectly when the day comes. Well, let's turn thirdly And finally, to verses 76-79, where Zechariah turns this prophecy over and and he considers his son, this baby boy in his arms. And we will see the pronouncement of salvation. Uh, A point of clarity. The first point, the promise of salvation, focused, in my mind, primarily on the experience of Israel um, in anticipation for a coming Messiah. This point, the pronouncement of salvation, is chiefly concerned with the experience of Israel in the arrival of Messiah. In short, he says it's it's like the sunrise after a long, dark, and cold night. To change the metaphor from what we said in the introduction, uh, I'm not a fan of horror movies. Uh, I watched them a lot in high school, uh, but I don't really watch them anymore. I realized that they, they did actually scare me. Uh, and um, every time I watched one, I, it was be- not really because I wanted to see it, but because I didn't want to seem scared, even though I often was. And on a very personal note, one of my greatest failures as a man, I think, occurred one night when Jesse and I were dating. We uh, had watched some scary movie with uh, my family uh, at my house, and uh, it was time for her to, to go home. The problem was that she was not actually going home. She was going to house sit for somebody alone. Now, I know what you're beginning to think if you have any version of a high opinion of me. Sam, surely you told her to go home and you would go stay the night in the big, dark, empty house. I really, really, really wish that's what had happened. I can't say I consciously thought 
about it and, and refused you know, to let her return to the safety of her home after watching a scary movie. She didn't ask. But I definitely wasn't consciously interested in keeping the future mother of my children safe and at peace that night. Uh, from what I understand, it was a tough night for her getting to sleep. She did eventually get to sleep and felt much better when the sun came up. But it was an unbelievable failure, I think, of masculinity on my part. Um, I don't know that I'll ever live it again, at least in my own heart. Jessie has been quite gracious about it. But it is incredible to note that she married me after that. There's something about the dark, though. There's something about it that has an inherent creepiness to it, a scariness to it, especially under certain contexts. But think about any horror movie that you've ever seen. The movie typically ends when? When the sun comes up. There's always some kind of long, dark, frightful night through, through which our protagonist must survive. But at dawn, we're safe. Salvation comes with the sun. This is the message of the Gospel. John was born and lived that he might prepare the way for Messiah, proclaiming a message of salvation, of grace and forgiveness, of deliverance from sin because of the mercy of God. And what does Zechariah say this message is like? It's like the sunrise at the end of a horror movie. God's tender mercy has visited us like the sunrise from on high. He has given light to those who sit in darkness, to those who sit in the shadow of death, to guide their feet into the way of peace. Zechariah's song is a song of peace. We are delivered from our enemies. We are forgiven of our sins. And we are rescued out of darkness by our conquering Savior. My friends, do you sit in darkness today? Perhaps as an unbeliever, you've never even really seen the light. Or believer, are you, are you haunted by the shadow of death despite all your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, for all of us, there is good news. Zechariah tells us that the Lord who came and brought salvation is here. The Lord, Jesus, cousin of this little boy, John, was born of the Virgin Mary and lived a perfect and sinless life in perfect obedience to the will and law of God, and yet he was put to death. He was left in the clutches of his enemies so that we might be delivered from ours, namely sin and death. The Lord of light was left to sit Rather, to hang on the cross in darkness that dawn might alight upon our faces. And yet, death doesn't have the final say on us because it couldn't have the final say over Him. After His death and burial, He arose from the grave, breaking the reign of death forever. And now He sits at the right hand of the Father and rules as King over the entire universe and He sends out this invitation. Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light.
He calls us to come and find rest in easy service forever to His name.